Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Vince and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. It's a privilege to have with us the 1980 Australian Open men's singles champion. This guest had a career-high world singles ranking of number seven, world doubles ranking as high as number five. This guest won eight career singles titles, 16 doubles titles throughout his career. He's now heavily involved with the Full Court Tennis app, which we will hear all about. My co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink, and I are very excited to have this guest on with us, Brian Teacher. Brian, thank you so much for uh, joining us and talking to us about your tennis journey. Hey, thank you for having me. You know, a, a funny point, just what you said, 1980, the trophy says 1981. Everybody said because it started in 80 and 81, but it's just like, okay, which one is it? So either one, <laughs> I'll take either one. I'm happy with it. <laughs> exactly, right? You'll take either yeah. one. I'm, I'm with you with that. I think Steve will agree with that. Hey, before we get into your latest project, just give us a, a snapshot of, of, of where you're currently at and what's keeping you busy. And if you want to talk a little bit about the app at that time, go right ahead. Well, yeah, really what's keeping me busy right now is full court tennis. And, you know, it's this project started about four four years ago. I was playing around uh, with uh, video technology, which was in coach's eye and huddle technique, the ability to take a quick video with your phone and then and then show the person on the court exactly what they're doing, you know, move it back and forth and scroll it back and forth digitally. And I said, wouldn't this be great if I could, you know, compare it, you know, to a, a pro stroke, right? And so then I said, oh, yeah, let's get some pro strokes on here and let's get some image rights of that. And then I said, well, we got some image rights so I can show a few different styles. But, you know, styles, there's different styles of play, but the ingredients, the essential ingredients are pretty much there. You got to do the essential ingredients right. So if you look at a few different styles and you pull out the ingredients, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, but we're trying to show everybody, hey, you got to be in this type of format. You know, your elbow needs to be here. And so when you see it visually, it's a, it, it makes for a great learning tool. So I said, let's build this. Okay. So I built it and I said, wouldn't it be great if we basically could uh, hire some coaches from around the world to get opinions on your strokes in this? And I said, oh my God. So, you know, McEnroe got involved. He's on my advisory board, John McEnroe, Katrina uh, Adams is, is also on the advisory board. And we feature, you know, ATP and WTA coaches in the app, but it's for any coach. It's for any level of play. And so basically for people to learn and for to hire a coach, so you can do stroke analysis, live video call, you can get a consult, you know, so like for coaches, like, let's say you're, you know, you're teaching your 30 kids a week or whatever, your lessons, you're grinding out and the kid goes to play a tournament. Well, if you don't, if you don't ever see him play and you might not have a chance if you're on the court teaching, you need to be able to see him play to really help them. So if they could record a match or a practice session and you can review it on the app, you're starting to get some learning, some best, see what's going on in the match so we can help them deeper. So you're able to basically, so I built this basically with live video call consult to be able to go over a match or practice session, to be able to look at strokes. And then you can hire a coach for, you know, these ATP WTA coaches that work with the best stars on the, on the tour today, but nobody knows anything about them. So, I mean, they're some of the greatest coaches in the world. And so let's get these guys out there where we can start improving the level of coaching and tennis and get opinions from these guys and are for coaches basically in general at the clubs just to work with their students. You don't have to get hired on the app. You can put your rates, your availability, hire for a long for a, a live video call. You can do the same for a stroke analysis, but a coach that doesn't have a global reach can just press a button. They can look up their player and they can just connect to a lesson with them and just start a lesson where they can share video back and forth and analyze it and they'll keep a date and timestamp. So it's a great learning tool 
for the player. He could self-learn. He can compare himself to the pro library, or he can work with his coach, or he can hire a coach from around the world and get a great opinion. So it's got all this, all these different variabilities, and it's got also a community feed where the coaches and players can post and interact. We got 15 channels, you know, from strokes to mental training, physical training, tips and drills, analysis, anything you want to look up. It's a pretty deep app and it's pretty complete. So we're trying to build this global community right now, basically for everybody to share this tennis information with all the great minds in the sport. And it's live right now, right? You yes, it's live. We're on, yes, we're on, we're on uh, at the app store right now. Okay, How yeah, many, and we were leafing around. On the the, team. Go ahead, sorry, David, sorry. How big a staff, a team do you have, and do you see it expanding? Obviously, it's your brainchild, but how many, uh, how, where do you see it going from here? Are you, and how much? Well, we're just, we're trying to get the word out. So we've kind of, we were in a soft launch mode and we just, we, so for about like six months, we've been a soft launch and we've just been kind of working on the technology and we just started feeling comfortable and we're starting to push it out now with this type of press that we're doing. We basically did, uh, you know, a press wire release this last week and we got picked up by, you know, I think like 300 different uh, different places with the post and stuff. So we're just starting to get attraction. We've got about a thousand people on the app right now. And so we're looking to build it and just to grow it basically in a big way. Because, you know, today, you know, it's like when I look at a player and I look at basically kids that come to me and I see, you know, the kids basically most of them have have a lot of poor technique in their game. And so if a kid basically has poor technique and the parents have spent thousands of dollars on these lessons, taking the kids to tournaments and stuff, these kids are going to end up stopping tennis just because they, they, they can't go any further because their technique gets ba- is bad. And if you, can't, if you can't have good technique, it's impossible to basically further your game. You're going to basically lose and get discouraged. And in this day and age with all this technology, it's crazy not to use this technology. It's a free download, the app. And you can compare your strokes to some of the best players in the world. So somebody that can't afford a coach can self-learn on the app, basically, or you can get an opinion if you want. So there's really, at the end of the day, I'm trying to educate these coaches to use this type of technology, this video technology. It makes me a better coach. And if it makes me a better coach, and I played at the highest level of the game, I've coached at the highest level of the game on the ATP tour and WTA tour, then it should make at least 98, 99% of the coaches better. So I I really believe in it. And it's just like I'm passionate about, you know, learning and giving this back to the game. That's a great transition to to what we want to talk about, Brian. And when Steve and I are eager to see how uh, this app grows and develops and we wish you the best of luck. But you you you. mentioned that, you know, you played at the highest level of the game, which you did. We want to dive into that a little bit. Sure. Um, You grew up in San Diego. You had a you had a great junior career, won the boys 18, 16, uh, 18s and singles and doubles in 1972. You went to UCLA, um, All-American, 1973 to 19, uh, 1976, member of two teams that won the championship in 75 and 76. Before you got to that point, let's talk about, I guess, how you got started in the sport and like at what point um, did you think like, whoa, I could maybe do this at a pretty high level at the collegiate level and then possibly even at the professional level? Well, sure. Absolutely. So, um, you know, first of all, I wasn't, you know, I was a top junior. I won the national 18 hard courts, but I wasn't like, didn't win Kalamazoo. So I was probably somewhere in the top eight, whatever. And then, you know, went to UCLA 
And uh, my sophomore year, I started to play. I started to play great tennis. Uh, my at the end of my freshman year at UCLA, I started to really rise up and start to beat the guys at you know the guys that were at the top of the team, like guys like Jeff Austin. I was playing him very tight. I don't know if I beat him my freshman year, but we had certainly some three set matches. But I was basically starting to really improve. And it was in my uh, in my sophomore year, I won the pack eight singles and doubles. And I said, you know what? I said, man, I said, you know what? Maybe I should think about like, maybe I can play pro or whatever. And so I still played four years at UCLA. I was a four-time All-American, but it was a big jump going from collegiate tennis into the pros. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's a different level of play, right? And it's a different level of commitment too, right? And you've got to be all in, right? So I wasn't sure I could do it. I just said, you know what? I'm going to see. But so Pretty early on, I always thought at the start I was a better doubles player than singles. And so I hooked up with uh, 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 Nailbags Carmichael. I don't know if you know that name, an Australian guy. He was a great tennis player, older Australian guys. He actually was Bob Carmichael. They called him Nailbags. And he was kind of a Nailbags because he was a carpenter and he couldn't afford to play on the tour. So he was like doing his carpentry work. He'd get money and then he'd go, go on the tour. But so we were playing doubles and we had success and we got to the, like in, like before I had single success, I got to the semis of, of, of Wimbledon and the U S open pretty much, you know, Bob took me under his wing and was kind of trying to get me a little bit tougher and not so laid back from being from California and going to the beaches all day. So he toughened me up and uh, I started having great success in the doubles. So if you get to the semis of, you know, Wimbledon and U S open, you start getting a little confidence and say, you know what? I don't know. I mean, Gosh, all of a sudden I'm doing pretty well. I'm getting some notoriety in doubles. Maybe I can transfer this to singles. And how, you know, how can I work on my singles game to get better? So I started at that time, started to get a little belief that maybe I could do well in singles. And, you know, there wasn't any money in tennis really in 68, you know, was the first open Ash beat Arca. It was like 14 grand to win it. And so I was at school 72 to 76. It was still kind of in its infancy, just starting to get prize money. Even some of those years, where I went to Wimbledon, the first round, you lose in the first round, it's like 350 pounds or something. And you can't even, you can't even uh, make your expenses, you know? So it was a different day and age basically, but it was the belief really, you know, of having some success in the doubles that helped me, helped me want to and believe that I could do in singles. Uh, Brian, looking at the singles, you described that evolution of your career very well, but going to say a couple of years after the college is beating Connors in 78. Can you talk about that moment? That was a big win. You beat Jimmy and Arthur Ashe back to back, I believe in, in uh, Tokyo, but you really yeah. had a, that, that was it then that the sort of a light switch went off that you were moving to another level. Well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I never imagined I could beat any of those guys. Right. And then all of a sudden you're playing against them and you say, well, let me try and see if I can get a game today. Right. You know, no, I got a game. Let's try and get another game. And then all of a sudden you get, you know, in the excitement of it and it's like, oh, I got another game. Let's keep this going. See how long I can keep going. Now, all of a sudden it's four or five or something. It's like, wow, what's going on here? Let me see if I can get a set. Right. And then it just kind of mushroomed like that. You know, I, I had no idea. I was just trying to see what could happen. Right. And so I ended up having some great wins. And so, yeah, that definitely gives you a lot of confidence. Right. You know, and before that, you had no idea. I literally was just trying to survive the match. Right. Well, let's talk about that run in, in 1980 1981 in Australia. And the, the joke that I had when I was going through the stats was you beat three Aussies in a row to win the title. 
uh, I, that's not a good way to win the home crowd, Brian. I mean, uh-huh. come on. <laughs> right. Wait, yeah. but Dave, before we get we, before we get to the three Aussies, which you're so right, I just want to be sure that Brian touches on the his first big win that really launched that campaign to win Australia, beating Tim Mayotte. And and Tim Mayotte was pretty tough for you, you right, Brian? You mean I, I'm not sure if I beat you, you? Are you talking about in the Australian Open? Or yeah. Not? Yeah, in the first round. I think it was Chris. I think it was Chris Mayotte, maybe his brother. I don't think it well, was Tim. The draw that the, the draw that I saw had you beating Tim, who who which I would think is true because uh, a couple of years later at Wimbledon, you lost. You got to the quarters and lost to Tim. Right, right. After beating Mats Vielander. so, so they, they certainly listed. But uh, you would know you were there, and maybe. Well, so here's there. a crazy story about the Australian Open is that I wasn't even in the tournament, basically. I pulled out of the tournament, so not too many people even know it. I, I was basically playing the best tennis of my life. I was uh, married at the time and uh, not doing well in the relationship or whatever, and uh, I just had got to the uh, the finals of Sydney. I had match points against Fritz Buning. I beat Vitas in the semis. Another a former Bruin, I was playing in the younger Bruin, uh, uh, Fritz Buning. I had match points in the, like, I think it was a nine point tiebreaker. I lost the match and I called home and, and my wife said, oh, I, I want to get a divorce. And so I said, oh my God, what's going on? And I ended up pulling out. I called the guy. I was so embarrassed. I called Colin Stubbs at, uh, in Australia, at, who was the director of the Open. I said, you know, Colin, I said, I hurt my back. I, I was embarrassed to tell him what, you know, I was having personal problems and I pulled out of the event. And so I basically packed my bags and I was basically, you know, headed back to the States. And I got a phone call from my father-in-law and said, oh, you know, it's not going to do you any good to come home. You guys are having problems. If you don't feel like playing, uh, don't play, but don't come home. And so I said, go to Hawaii or something. So I thought for like a couple hours, I said, oh, I got my plane is like in four hours or I packed my bags. I'm out of the open. I said, I don't think I can go to Hawaii. I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to call the guy. I said, I might as well just try to play the event basically. And just, you know, so I ended up calling, calling Stubbs back a couple hours later. I was 20 minutes away from getting in the cab to go to the airport. And uh, I said, Colin, you know, I went to got some acupuncture on King's Cross. My back is feeling a lot better. Do you think I could get back into the event? And he said, oh my God, Brian, I just gave your spot away to a lucky loser. He said, well, let me look in the draw. He says, oh. He says, oh, my God. He says, you know, he says, I think this one guy might be pulling out. I don't even know who it was. And he said, but I'll tell you what. He says, I'll put you in, but you can't breathe a word of this to anybody or I'll get in trouble. So I said, Colin, I won't say a word. <laughs> so, so for pretty much 25 years, he, I got back in the draw and I won the tournament. I didn't say a word. So now, you know, it's out, basically. So there it is. You know? now, listen, so I got David. in. I got back in and I, you know. I was not playing well. I was playing the best tennis of my career, but because I was personally struggling with my marriage, basically, it was like, oh my God, I was like the first round, you know, I was like, I'd be playing well and then I would go off somewhere and then I'd kind of get it together. And so each round I kind of got a little better and better. And finally I got, you know, it was playing these Australian guys you're saying. And I said, you know what? I could, you know, I got to the court and I said, you know what? Maybe I have a shot to win this. Let's really try to focus on one match at a time. And it came true. And so it was, yeah, that was my, it was my, uh, my most success and greatest victory for sure. It was exciting. Brian, just to follow up on just so the listeners know, not to bring back the pain of your divorce, but you were married to Kathy May. Yes. And of course people 
now know her as the mother of Taylor Fritz, which is, yes. uh, have you followed, quickly, a quick note before you go back to Australia, but have, I'm sure you've followed Taylor's progress. Oh, absolutely, and I'm, I'm thrilled, and I'm, and I'm best friends with uh, the dad, Guy Fritz, basically. We grew up in San Diego, we're best buddies, and uh, all, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled for, for everybody, and Taylor's doing so well. Super to see that. Okay, now, now go back. You, you, you said you get to the quarters. You think you might possibly be able to win this. And well, yeah, I mean the quarters. You're three matches away, right? And it's like, you know, it's like, okay, I could, you know, let's let's try to get by this match, basically. And so by the quarters, I was all in. You know, every match I was worried about, like, you know, my marriage and this or that, and focusing and like, and I said, no, now I'm in the quarters. I said, you have a chance. Just you know, really, really one point at a time. Let's stay focused and dive into this. And so, yeah, I started believing that I could do it. You know, it was on grass and I kind of liked to play on grass. It was a good surface for me. And I, I just felt confident and just said, well, why not? Right. And so, you know, I, I, I ended up playing well. Those, the trio of guys that you beat, Brian, you know, McNamara, McNamee and, and Kim Warwick, obviously you, you, it culminated with Kim Warwick. Right. Talk about who was the toughest in that trio. McNamara, McNamee, obviously known as a great doubles team as well. Uh, well, I think I think uh, look at it from your standpoint. Who who was the toughest there? Well, I think um, McNamara ended up playing probably. You know, he got in. You know, after that, he got into the top ten, so he was probably ended up being the top player. But Kim Warwick was a great player, uh, singles and doubles player, and he he beat Velos in the round before. So he was awfully tough on grass. So they're, you know, they were all, all good players, but probably, you know, maybe McNamara ended up being the best out of them. And then Kim and then McNamee was a good singles player, but more known as a doubles player. And then once you'd achieved it, how much did you reflect on the fact that now you were a grand slam champion? Because at that time, obviously Australia was not necessarily viewed in the same. A lot of, some of the top players didn't go in those years. It would change later changed the site and went to hard courts in 88. How did you feel at that time? Did you do a lot of reflecting about what this meant to you historically? Well, it, you know, it was certainly the greatest thing in my career and it still is today, but what had happened when I came home after the event, my marriage really kind of fell completely apart. And so it caused a lot of emotional stress and a deep emotional stress that I didn't want to play tennis. So here I was playing the best tennis of my life. I came home and then everything completely fell apart and collapsed. And to be perfectly honest, I was like kind of a walking zombie for about six months and didn't really want to play, had no confidence. It felt like the, the, you know, like my feet were pulled out from under me. And so it took me a while to get back. And I started playing better that summer. I won the Buckeye boys ranch in the summer and I beat Connor's, at the Transamerica in the fall. And then I was on a plane to go to Europe. And uh, I remember I stayed up too late that night and uh, I didn't get a a lot of sleep and we had plane delays. I got from Europe probably having stayed up almost two nights in a row with like maybe like three hours of sleep, had to get on a court with, it was a different service. I ended up snapping my ankle and I was out for eight months. I came home. I just tore all the ligaments in my ankle. I came home. I was not in a good shape. And my father passed away, unfortunately, had died of a heart attack uh, like a couple of days after I came home. So it was just a bad, bad stretch of uh, luck. So, you know, so it's funny at the pinnacle of my thing. So I wasn't reflecting on it. I was like, wow, I don't know. One minute I'm up, the next minute I'm down. And 
that's kind of how life can be at times, right? It's just, you just never but know. You mentioned, but you mentioned again, you have another reference to Connors. Do you feel looking back, I mean, you had some good, good performances against him and what was that a matchup that was in some ways favorable to you as an attacking player on your best days? You know, did you think that you were, well, you I, had the right yeah. kind of play style to, to throw Jimmy off if you were attacking particularly well against I mean, him? Yeah, I mean, I felt I felt like if I played my best tennis, I'd have a shot. I mean, we, we played a bunch of times. I'm sure he had a winning record. I, I, I ended up, I managed to beat him a couple of times, was, was lucky enough to have good days and beat him a couple of times. But you know, uh, he was, an, I mean, I, we practiced a lot. He was fun to practice with. He pushed you, you know, he pushed you to be, be the best you can be. You know, you learn a lot practicing with a guy like that, basically, who comes out there every day, giving it his all every time he comes on the court. He was one of the hardest practicers. I mean, he was intense. When you practice with Jimmy, it was like, man, you were going to war, you know? And so it, it was, it was fun practicing with him. I mean, you learned a lot by playing with Jimmy Connors and he was just an incredible competitor. So I was thrilled to be able to have a couple wins over him. Yeah, we, we referenced the uh, the Wimbledon quarterfinal uh, run in 82 when you lost to Tim Mayotte. I remember the guy you beat in the first round was Shlomo Glickstein from Israel. That's who you beat in the first round. Talk about that run. I know you lost to Tim in the quarters. I believe it was in five sets. I mean, you were close. I mean, you were really close, and, and that right. was a good tournament. The 1982 I, Wimbledon was a really good tournament. I had I, I played slow-mo. It was crazy. So, you know, they didn't have – you know, when it rained, they didn't have the bubbles up like they have them now on the courts. You know, they would sweat a little, so you'd get a little moisture on the courts, and, you know, you'd be – the courts would be down all day. So we basically started the match on a Monday, and we finished it on a Friday. Oh, my God. So every day we, you know, I, I had, we had our rear end sitting in the locker room on these hard benches, you know, the facilities weren't all that nice. There was, but you know, the A locker room, which I had gotten to the A locker room was a lot better than the B locker room, but still. And you still had the middle Sunday where there was no play at that point. I think they probably played that. They time. had to, but, yeah, I mean, if you yeah. were that backed up. For yeah. Sure. So it got really backed up, but uh, yeah. But, uh, you recall, I'm sure you recall too, that one of the problems in those days, David, and I went, I, I've been going to all those Wimbledons going back to 65, but in those days, Brian, as you recall, they were very stubborn about the starting times. And exactly. I, that, that, that way they would start at two o'clock. Exactly. Uh, you know, that they, they should have been. And a lot of those days <laughs> that Brian's talking about when he was sitting around in the locker room, they could have been out there at 11, 12 o'clock and they just wouldn't change. They later, yeah. a few years later, they started mending their ways, changing their ways on that. But that put the tournament on a terrible course to the point where it almost was going to be a Monday final when it came down to finishing the last men's round of 16 match and we squeezed it in on the Thursday. I can only imagine, Brian, what it was like to be in your shoes with that much rain and that much sitting around. Talk about what that entailed for you as a top player. Yeah, well, it's just it just wasn't fun. I mean, you could there the facilities in those days, you know, they were you go up to the restaurant, the tea room, and it was overpacked. I mean, it was just you couldn't even during the rain you because everybody that could get in was in there, right? Because there was nowhere else to go. So you've got guests and everybody else, and the tea room small, and you can't move or breathe. It's like you're shoulder to shoulder with everybody, and it's like and there's so much noise, and so you you would end up saying, okay, I can go take a quick break up there, but it wasn't very peaceful or relaxing. So you'd go down to the locker room and you'd sit on the bench in the locker room and you'd read a book or you'd play backgammon or just goof around with the guys. But 
it was pretty, it's pretty slow. And it was kind of a, it was not fun. Just those, those periods. I remember. And that was a, of course. And then when it was raining in England in those days, there was really, there was like what, two, two, maybe two indoor courts in the whole city. Right. Ridiculous. Right. So Brian, what were your impressions when you beat Bielander? He'd come off winning the French in 82 and you play him on the grass and maybe Matt's had a ways to go as a fast court player, sure. but did you, did you see him becoming as versatile as he later proved to be, as opposed to a guy who's just won the French in your play? You know, I think I, if I remember correctly, he I think he he did well in Belgium before the French Open, uh, and I think I I thought I'm not sure if I lost him in Belgium or he won the tournament. So I thought, you know, this guy's amazing, but I was just shocked that he actually uh, won the French. I think he was really wasn't he like 17? Or? 17. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 17. And, 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 and I was shocked. And so uh, I just thought, you know, yeah, he's not that experienced on the grass. And, you know, you got to figure out a way. Don't, you know, he loves to hit in the backcourt. This is grass. Don't let him, you know, just kind of take it away from him, basically, and play aggressive and come to net a lot, which I did. And I think I kind of kind of surprised him and, you know, in a sense, overpowered him. Yeah, he had a ways to go, no question. And he kept improving. I mean, that guy was such a good athlete. I'm saying, I talked to Matt years later. I talked to him. Such a great guy. but. You know, he told me he played ice hockey. He played ice hockey and tennis until like 15 and a half. He was playing two sports and he decided to focus on tennis. You know, he's playing tennis three days a week at 15, 15 and a half. And he focuses on tennis. And then in a year and a half, two years later, he wins the French Open. I mean, OK, I mean, you know, that's that's a pretty good athlete. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> when you look back, I, I guess I want to ask, um, obviously, years later now, when you look back at that 82 run, do you look at that as almost like, oh, I was I was this close, especially losing to the quarters in five sets? Or in the alternative, do you look at it like, you know what, that was a good run. It was a great match in the quarters. Well, I'm no, satisfied I mean, with that it's run. It's always it's it's a little it's always a little I mean, it's great to get to the quarters, but obviously a little hurtful to lose. I mean, I think you know, I, I was right there and it would have been nice to say I got to the semis, but I but I never did. So I can't say that. So obviously, yeah, it's, it stings a little bit. I was happy for Tim, but, you know, he played McEnroe, who was basically at the top of his game in the next round. And so he ended up losing to McEnroe. But, yeah, you, you want to get it. I mean, that's the pinnacle event, Wimbledon. You want to get as far as you can get, right? So I got to the quarters. Not too bad, right? No, it, not right? too bad at all. I, I know uh, if there, there was one other event that I want to talk about. Steve, if you want to talk anything about Wimbledon, go go ahead before we get to the No, just a quick aside to that, that, that it did end up, I don't know, I'm probably, Brian, at that point, you know, having lost, you were understandably a little deflated and you'd done so well. But then we had a terrific final that year with Connors yeah. and McEnroe, okay. the five-setter. And uh, so after all the rain and your personal woes there and the great run that you had, it did end on a high note with the Connors McEnroe final of 82, which went the distance. So that was a memorable Wimbledon. Oh my gosh. They had some great matches. Didn't they? Those guys. They sure they did. did. And that's, and, and I don't want to, you know, age both of you, but I was seven years old at that time. And I remember <laughs> the final in 1982 wow. it was five sets and it was great. So I do remember that Brian, final. Brian, we're going to, we're, we're going to pretend we just didn't hear what he just said. <laughs> okay. Right. Right. <laughs> I have a hard time accepting that, that that he was seven years old. Well, he looks like he fits in with us now, so that's all that's important. <laughs> oh, great. Well, hey, there, there is there is one other event that I know is, is close to Steve's heart, um, and it was an event you won in Newport in 1979. Of all the people you beat, you beat Stan Smith. You know, Steve obviously holds Newport's 
close to his heart. Steve's a Hall of Famer, was inducted there in 2015, 2017. Steve has been going there forever. Um, talk about that event and talk about that run and talk about maybe what makes that event so special uh, to you. Well, I, I love, first of all, Newport. What a, what a great you know, what a great location, Newport, Rhode Island in the summer. I mean, the beaches and the sailing and just the atmosphere of the town. I mean, it's so idyllic and just like, I mean, it's just, it's just great. And then, and then hanging out at the hall of fame there, you know, we go, I'd go eat at the, at the coffee shop every day and have lunch. And, you know, and just, it was just, it's just a really cool spot. And then playing on grass, this historic place. I mean, how cool is that? Right. You know, you get this historic place with the hall of fame and it just was, it was, it was really amazing. You know, the, the, the interesting thing was when I played Stan in the finals, it was one of those days where the fog was rolling in and it was really weird. It was like I couldn't see his feet at sometimes on the other side of the court on the baseline because the fog, it was a low fog on the ground. It was just like it was kind of eerie. It was kind of weird. But anyway, uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun playing there. I, I'm going to say one quick story. I remember playing Tim Wilkerson in I think the quarters there. I've never had this happen. So he was playing. He was serving, and I'm watching him, and he's serving, and he he's like he's like talking, like mouthing, like what something's coming out of his mouth before he serves every ball. And I'm going, I've never seen a guy. He's talking to himself when he's serving, and so I started, you know, I started looking at his mouth and reading, and he's he's going like this forehand back <laughs> he's telling me where he's serving before i've never had that happen that was well, that's, that's so interesting you know uh andre agassi said he had to tell when he played boris becker when boris becker would go he would point his tongue at the direction that's what he said he i heard that. that's crazy, that's crazy. Yeah. that's crazy right yeah. but what do you what do you think was he trying to was he trying to throw you off? What do you well, that's why you know, you wonder that, right? You wonder, but I, I think it was just a subconscious thing that he was thinking so hard. He was just mouthing what he was doing. It was just, yeah. it was a great, I said, can we keep this up, please? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but did you, while you were there, did you get a chance to go into the museum, which has changed dramatically since then? I wonder, were you, did you? I, as I, a did, I have walked in there at times. Yeah, I've played that yeah. a couple of times. I have walked in. I haven't been in there. So we're talking, I mean, you know, like, you know, 40, 42 years ago. Right, right. Years ago. It's been a while. I want to, before we, before we end our discussion, I, I do want to talk about coaching a little bit, obviously a little bit with how we started the, the discussion, but you know, just because you're a great coach, uh, just because you're a great player doesn't automatically mean you're a great coach. Just because, you know, if you're not a great player, you still could be an exceptional coach. You've seen all those Correct. equations. Um, yes. After your career, you worked with some incredible players, incredible doubles players. I mean, Jim Grab, Richie Renenberg, Daniel Nestor, Max Mirny. I mean, these are top, top guys in doubles. Um, and I worked, at, I worked you with do? your boy at Tennis Channel, Mark Knowles, too. Yeah, uh, you work with Mark. Um, you work with Greg Rosetsky and Andre for a short time too, right? Uh, I worked with Greg for about 18 months. He was he was like, you know, in the top 80. He'd been on the tour for five years, and I had really good success with him. Uh, we ended in like within, I don't know, 16 months or something. He got into the quarters of Wimbledon and the finals of the U.S. Open. So I was, I was thrilled with my success with him. But we was, ended up... Was coaching like something that, that you felt like you wanted to do or it fell into your lap? And then I guess the second part of that question is what, what did you learn um, from those guys that, that you helped coach? Um, I think that you kind of, in a sense, 
I just, it was just a time in my life where I was doing things. And I said, you know what? I want to go try it. I want to go try and do a little coaching with some top players. And I just had the opportunity. I think Brad Gilbert uh, hooked me up with, uh, with Greg uh, Rosetsky. And so I just, I tried it and I see, you know, I was not sure what I was getting into. And uh, you know, with my experience with him, it was, it was, it's difficult. It's difficult because coaching a, a player the tough thing about the player coaching a player is you can't necessarily always tell them what you want to tell them because they're paying your salary. So it's, it's a very, it's a different thing than coaching a team in concept. Yes. So, so it, you gotta be, you gotta finesse it well, basically. And, you know, that's why I don't think that a lot of the coaching relationships last long periods of time. There have been some that have, but not, not, not most of them don't last that long. So it's a, it is a different dynamic. I get that it's a different dynamic. Yeah. But if you, if you as a player have a good relationship with your coach and you know that the coach has your best interest at hand, I think as a player, you have to put your ego aside and listen to your coach. Now, if you disagree um, fundamentally on something or philosophy, that's a whole nother thing. But um, right. it is a different equation, right? Because the player is paying the coach, Steve. It's different. Um, than a normal situation in the NBA, you have players that are making more money than the coach, but it's still a team type of atmosphere where the coach does have a little bit more. And, and in between the team atmosphere, you're you're interacting with the coach during the competition, whereas in tennis, you're out there by yourself. So right. the good, the top players, you have to believe that you can do it by yourself. So part of that is this, this mental toughness and the ability to withstand pressure and to go through it. But then there's the part that says, okay, I need to be open to possible changes and hearing different points of view to get better. And so that's the tough part, I think, for the player to know when that's supposed to happen. And when we had, when we had, um, Steve, one sec, when we had Brad on the, on the pod with us, Brad Gilbert on the pod with us, you know, it was interesting and, and it's at all levels, actually, obviously Brad, coach at the top level but yeah it's knowing your player so well that you know if you can say a lot to your player and they will absorb all that or you can say a little to a player because they know that they don't like to be talked about and have all of this the plethora of information that you can provide i think that and and again you worked with a variety of players that takes time to really know your player and see how you can communicate the message the best way that the player can receive that message yeah, and I think I think Brad Gilbert with his players, he did he did an amazing job with just you know with with the guys that he's worked with. I mean, just incredible. Uh, so he, he's 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 an, just an unbelievable coach. It's not easy to do that. It's not easy to do to bring these guys up, Andy Murray, you know, and Roddick, and these guys that he all helped out in Agassi. So you know, kudos to Brad. What a, what an amazing coach. But Brian, what about the 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 never-ending syndrome the coaches and players in the sense that you're so much at the mercy of their results i mean how often did you get blamed or for losses that you couldn't really have prevented you might have given greg or other players the perfect advice strategically prior to the match and then they didn't execute and or or maybe they did try something out that you recommended that didn't work but how, how did you feel about that aspect of it were a lot of the players too prone to maybe maybe taking the advice for granted when it was good and things went well but when they were losing kind of looking at you as if it was your fault well i you know i had that a tiny bit but on the whole most of the guys uh, were pretty good as far as 
as far as listening and trying to implement and believe what I was saying. But I did have that, you know, a few occasions where people doubt what you're saying and, and, and don't feel it's necessarily the right things. And so those relationships definitely, you know, usually end pretty, pretty quickly after that. Right. That's just the sad part of the, the whole coaching mechanism with that guy's playing your salary and it's not somebody else hiring you to coach him. Right. So that's the sensitivity and, just, just, just how it is. It's an unusual situation, right? Unusual situation with uh, times. And you wanted to say to somebody, though, let's say uh, hypothetically, Greg Buzeski serving a four, five, 30, 40 final set match point down, <laughs> misses a low, low first volley, and it's over. Uh, I mean, what I mean is, you couldn't go out there at four, five, 30, 40 and execute for him. So I oh. mean. I wonder how much of that you experienced, though, because uh, they're frustrated and they want to win so badly. Well, and they're- I, I think I think one thing that that is interesting is that is that players sometimes, you know, want to protect their ego. And so they don't want to actually hear what you saw that in a way that, that you know, whether they were tight or choking or this or that or what or something that happened that you saw. They're sometimes they're trying to protect their ego too much. So sometimes you got to let them have it. And sometimes it's just time to say, you know, no, you need to step up better. So that's the fine line of a coach when he does that. And, you know, if he, if he, if he tells them those things and the guy's not ready to hear it, well, that usually could be the end of the, the coaching situation. Yeah. So that's the fine line. That's the fine line between coaching one-on-one and an individual sport. Right. What was the most fulfilling coaching experience you've ever had? There's one standout. Well, I mean, I have to say, you know, even though it ended on a bad note, because my my thing with Rosetsky ended after I got him in on the run to the quarterfinals and then the finals of uh, the U.S. Open. So that was the most success I had with a singles player from 80 in the world or wherever he was. He was on the fall and he, he dropped to 80 with quickly within a month or so after me starting with him. And then we got him up into the top 10 within 16 months. I mean, he'd been on the tour for five years. So that was extremely fulfilling though the relationship ended on a sad note and kind of unfulfilling at the end of the end of the end of the whole experience which was disappointing but that's just part of the coaching experience right and so but yeah I look at it and I said wow I felt I did a great job he did a great job we worked together great and by the way he never he never got to another quarter he was a young guy I think he was 23 he never got to another quarterfinals of a of a major again so yeah, I felt yeah. good with the work I did and it was just unfortunate we left on not a good relationship but you know our lives move on and you know I'm sure he's happy and I'm happy and yeah. life goes on right and through Absolutely. the through the wealth of of who you coached um all levels would you be interested i mean what did, did you like being a, a touring coach did you like the travel or if you had a situation right now come to you where you would have a let's say high performance junior or even a very good collegiate player uh versus a, a touring pro right now what would you what would be your preference at this stage of your career? well yeah i don't want to travel on the tour i i basically i think basically you know uh, my stint with Rosetsky, I've been, been coaching the, the, the other guys that we talked about, Mirny and those guys. My kind of stint with Rosetsky, I think I coached for another year and a half, two years. I, I stopped coaching about 2000 as far as traveling on the tour. It just, you know, I didn't like the time away from my family and living out of a suitcase. It just became kind of, you know, unbearable for me that I just didn't like it. Understood. Well, well, Brian, I got nothing else, Steve. I'll, I'll leave it for you for any final thoughts. Obviously, we want to wish you the been, best of luck with uh, 
with with the uh, full court tennis app and i'll leave it to uh, my co-host for any uh parting thoughts well it's a little irresistible to just ask you brian how impressed you've been with these three icons in this era that have been so such gripping performers you know and federer djokovic and Nadal, and then your uh, briefly your thoughts on Federer's retirement, the timing of it. W- w- did he pick the right time to go at forty-one? Well, I, th- I think that you know, y- yeah, we're never going to see a group of guys. I mean, like how many of these guys? I think it's like what are they? Like sixty slams between you know at least the top four guys with Murray. <laughs> yeah. and these guys, it's like some incredible record over the last fifteen years. How many slams these guys have won and. I don't think we're ever going to see a group in our lifetimes of, of, of this type of, uh, you know, excellence and professionalism and, and such great ambassadors of the sport. So uh, as far as 41, you know, he hasn't been doing the last few years. He's struggled with injuries. Obviously he had his heart into it to try to get back and to play at the highest level. And he just saw finally that it wasn't, it wasn't going to be. And so, yeah, I think it was, I think in a sense, it was a perfect time for him to, to bow out. You know, you, you never know when it's time until it's time, right? You know, yeah. especially when somebody is so passionate about the game, but when you look at how many miles he's got on his body, right. You know, if you looked at a set of tires and say, you know what, this set of tires is only good for, you know, a hundred thousand miles. Well, he's had a million miles on those set of tires and he's done a pretty incredible job of managing injuries and stuff, but eventually no matter how lucky you are and how good you manage it, it, it catches everybody eventually, right? It's just it's just too stressful a sport to do day and day. He just didn't, I mean, nobody's played at that level for that length of time and that many matches. You know, it's just been incredible what 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 all those guys are doing. And it's just uh, you know, hats off to them. It's there, there's just so much fun to watch. And it's it's a different, it's a different day and age today, as you can see. You know, Wimbledon was kind of wide open in a sense. And uh, and now all these other tournaments, there's, we're, we're starting to see other players kind of rise up and try to take the reins. And we'll see what happens in the next couple of years here. But, you know, it's exciting. It's exciting to see these guys and who's going to step up. You know, it's just kind of a sad era to come to an end because we all we just would we, we all loved and cherished watching those matches so much. And they're just not they're not there anymore. Right. So. We'll have to have some some replacements. We'll see what happens. It's going to be you know interesting and exciting to see. Very well said. Brian, thank you uh, for your time tonight. And again, best of luck. You can find Full Court Tennis app uh, anywhere. You can download apps. There's also the website. You could uh, leaf around and find more information on that. Best of luck with that. Brian, thanks again. And uh, we appreciate your time. Hey, thank you.